Now, I, um, I don't often issue health warnings at the start of my sermons, but um, that is what I thought I would do tonight. Because if you follow the news about the Church of England this week, you'll know that the bishops made a significant announcement on Friday, which means that um, tonight we have a pastoral letter from the bishops of the Church of England in one hand, um, and two letters from Jesus Christ to the churches in the other hand. And um, it's still very early days uh, on the letter from the bishops, so tonight is just going to be um, the situation as it seems to me now. I'd encourage all of you to go on the Church of England website and read all the documents for yourself. Um, and please will you pray. I'm spending four days away next week with four of those bishops who've written the document, as well as um, a whole wide range of evangelical and charismatic leaders from across the Church of England. And I hope to understand the document and the bishops much better um, by the end of those four days. Um, please pray. But tonight, I think we can look at Revelation chapter 2 and at our church, uh, the Church of England, the situation there, and we can ask, what is a church supposed to be? You see, these, these letters in Revelation, they're written like um, mini health checks for uh, seven churches now in modern Turkey at the end of the first century. They look at what Jesus says is good and at what Jesus says is bad, and that will help us to understand what kind of church he wanted and also what it means to be faithful to him. And the, um, the health warning bit is that at the end of um, six to ten years of talking, the bishops have now come back with their answer on same-sex marriage, which means that tonight we're going to need to spend some time talking about that as well. And um, Chloe, thank, Chloe's already prayed, thank you, um, about how very painful that could be um, for those in this room who are in same-sex relationships or who wish that they could be. Um, though actually the, um, the bishops have said a great deal more um, about sex in general than I was expecting, which means actually tonight will be less focused on same-sex attracted people than it might have been. And I suspect tonight will be painful for all of us. Um, so the bishops, they, um, they apologize for um, rejecting LGBTQI plus people. And they now say that they affirm that LGBTQI plus people are welcomed and valued. Now, I, um, I don't have any illusions that people may have experienced rejection um, or hostility or even homophobia here at All Souls. And that is shameful and that is wrong. Uh, everyone is welcome and valued here. But the apology we've got here, it comes with a, a redefinition of the church's doctrine of sex outside marriage. It comes with draft services that are to be used to affirm, celebrate, dedicate, and bless same-sex relationships like civil marriage. Uh, though there is also um, quite a long section explaining that because Christians are you know, told to bless our enemies... Um, you won't actually be able to tell when the church blesses your relationship whether we think it's sinful or holy. Clever, isn't it? 
Are you our enemy or our friend? I'm not going to tell you. Um, it's weird, isn't it? We apologize for excluding you. We're going to put that right by blessing your relationship. And sex outside marriage is probably fine now, but we still won't marry you in church. And the whole thing, it tells you nothing about whether we approve of your relationship or not. And it, it seems to me, and actually also to some of the campaigners who take the opposite view from me in general, seems to me this is more homophobic than what preceded it, not less. So the Church of England seems to be saying that gay sex is not wrong anymore, according to the bishops, but that marriage in church is only for heterosexuals. Isn't that more homophobic? More discriminatory? So um, in case you've joined All Souls relatively recently, let me just for a couple of minutes um, tell you what All Souls teaches on this, uh, which we are not planning to change based on what the bishops have said, and which has been the position of the church everywhere in the world since the time of Jesus until very recently in some Western churches, and which is more welcoming, more inclusive, more liberating, and more affirming of the value of human beings than anything that has come out of the sexual revolution. So Jesus... Jesus says that God created sexual difference between male and female, and that God also created sex as a way of uniting male and female, man and woman, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And that that uniting, which is called marriage, is a joining done by God, intended to be lifelong, which no one should separate. So on that view, on Jesus' view, sexual intimacy with all of its power and its wonder and its emotional force, it is beautiful and glorious and important within that framework where it generates a united home in God's service and has the potential to generate children who grow up in stable and secure families which is good then for all of society, uh, single or married or divorced or widowed, that's good. And the Bible's claim is human society is better when sex is reserved for marriage and worse when it is unrestricted, as it was in the cities named in our, our Bible passage and as it has been since the sexual revolution in the West. Um, sex outside of God's design is actually worse for children and has been objectively, obviously worse for the treatment of women in particular and worse for men and women who choose to develop sexually under the, the not at all disinterested leadership of those who provide pornography or who sell um, dreams or cars or cleaning products um, on the basis of sex. And you see, on Jesus' understanding of sex, we, we are all of us welcome on exactly the same basis. No matter who we are attracted to or tempted to have sex with, and however thoroughly uh, anyone might have embraced the sexual revolution in our past, anyone who repents of sin, of all sin, including sexual sin, 
and commits to follow Jesus, which means committing to sex being only within marriage as defined by him, and commits to abstaining from sex elsewhere, anyone who responds to Jesus like that is fully and equally part of the Christian church. And I've known people who have found that a very, very painful part of their journey to Christ. Whether we're talking about sexual relationships with someone of the opposite sex or of the same sex, or about the freedom to have sexual relationships with whoever I want, when I want. I think it is particularly painful for gay and lesbian people because some heterosexual couples can repent and then marry their partner and restart that active sexual relationship. Um, But it is also painful for the teenager whose friends are all throwing themselves into pornography and for the widower whose wife has died and for the single woman in her 30s who would dearly love to be married but only to a Christian and for the married person who's begun an affair and the divorcee who thought that marriage would last. And here at All Souls, every person in the room is a sexual sinner, and anyone can be included if they will repent daily of their sin and follow Jesus. And actually, right around this room now, and involved in All Souls, right across all our spheres of service and leadership, there are people who are attracted to people of the same sex, but who are fully part of All Souls, not excluded or rejected, but included, and on the same basis as me, that we turn from our sin and turn to Christ. And I think that the bishop's alternative for gay people is this confusing muddle where we apologize for asking you to repent, even though Jesus does ask that, and you don't know if you're really included, though we want you to think that you are. But really, on Friday... Um, the bishop said something profound about sex for everybody. Um, So they say, um, they say, for many years, um, the church has taught that the only rightful place for sexual activity is marriage. That is what the church has taught for all of the years, actually. But now they disagree among themselves about whether that should still be the case. So they say they've issued these prayers for any couple Um, to say that as long as there is faithfulness and commitment, there can be sex and you can still be fully part of the church. And those relationships, they can be formal, like a civil partnership or a civil marriage, but they don't need to be. So um, again, I'm sorry for spelling this out for so long, but do you see how this um, affects all of us? So maybe are you dating? Um, Are you dating? Are you wondering whether to get married and trying to keep sex until the day that you've made that decision and you've made that public commitment for life. Well, the bishops say, don't worry, it doesn't matter. You're in a faithful, committed relationship now, have sex. And Jesus says that's a matter of repentance and of whether you are following him as Lord. Um, And the bishops, they don't actually define how much commitment or how much faithfulness is necessary for the church to affirm your sexual relationship. I'm assuming, you know, like a holiday um, romance, that's probably too short. Um, But um, let's say one month in with a new date um, and it's going well, but maybe he makes it clear that he expects sex if 
the relationship is going to continue. And um, maybe in that situation, she says, no, because I'm a Christian and Jesus tells me to obey him. Now, I'm not sure that, you know, Tinder will start distributing the bishop's pastoral letter, um, but um, it's not a bad reply for him, is it? The bishops of the Church of England say that it is fine for us to have sex. What's your problem? Except, of course, that Jesus says, actually, that's about what is best for you from the one who created you and loved you and created sex and knows how to help you in every circumstance of life and for all time, including after the invention of internet dating. Okay, now, sorry it's taken so long. Bishop's letter in one hand, Bible in the other hand. Let's see what Jesus says to the churches. And what I'm going to do, we're going to take Pergamum and Thyatira together because the the situation is uh, similar in both. So in both, we're going to ask, what does Jesus ask of a church? In particular, what does Jesus, the faithful witness, ask of us if we're going to be faithful churches? And in each letter, we're going to see some good, um, some bad, and then something about the loved, um, those who Jesus loves. So first of all, the good. Um, look at 2 verse 13, page 1, 2, 3, 4, as Will said, helpfully. Uh, verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, um, which means that their city was dominated by the worship of other gods and is a place where uh, Christians get persecuted if they don't join in with the worship and the morals of life in the city. And Jesus, he knows that in that city they are doing really, really well, yet you remain true to my name, or you did not renounce your faith in me. Aren't those wonderful words to hear from Jesus? Um, And they're like Smyrna last week, but actually one stage further. So Smyrna, they were told that they were going to need to be faithful even to the point of death. But now in Pergamon, they're already there. True to Jesus' name, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. So these are courageous, wonderful, faithful Christians. They've refused to deny Jesus, even when the city began killing members of the congregation. Okay, just compare with Thyatira. So look at verse 19. I know your deeds. And I don't, do you remember Ephesus last week? Ephesus had lots of deeds, but no love and actually had less love than they had at first. So listen to Thyatira. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Love and more than you did at first. So um, Pergamum is one stage further on than Smyrna, and Thyatira is far better than Ephesus. Deeds and love and increasing wonderful words to hear from Jesus. Pray that Jesus would have reasons to say that kind of thing to all souls. But I need to move us to the bad, to the nevertheless in verse 14 and verse 20. And I think this is surprising. Um, Surprising to our culture in general, surprising to normal church culture, and um, especially shocking to the bishops. So verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
Or verse 15, likewise you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now is that a surprise? Um, Do you notice what the bad is? The bad isn't that everybody in the church teaches this stuff. It is that those people are among them. Um, And by the way, it, it cannot mean, you know, visitors. Um, any visitor here tonight, whatever you believe, I'm delighted you are here with us. Please tell us, tell me your response to what we've said tonight, um, to what Jesus said here. You know, teach whatever you like uh, here as a visitor. This, though, it must mean that this teaching is present as a sort of officially included view. Um, you know, perhaps one of the house groups teaches this, or even one of the preachers. And Jesus, do you see, he doesn't only call those teachers to change. He calls the church, verse 16, to repent. Bit of a shock. Bit like we said last week, where the church wasn't, you know, full of love for God, and we're surprised to hear them told, repent. Um, same here, an inappropriate walking together with is met with a call to the whole church to repent. Um, Now compare that to verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. So the, the surprising bad specifically is tolerance. Now, um, tolerance in most situations, is a wonderful, good thing. It is a Christian virtue. In fact, it is one of the main gifts of the Christian gospel to Western civilization. So if you go to work and you can happily work alongside people who are very different from you and you can love them and care for them and allow them the freedom to live in the way that they choose to live, including sexually, then you are a tolerant person and a Christian. And actually, if you can come to church... And love as family, the the wonderful diversity of people and nationalities and sexualities and personalities that the Lord has gathered here. And you don't expect them to change to fit in with your preferences and your culture. Then you are a tolerant person and a Christian. But if a church, that's what this is saying, if a church tolerates a teaching that Jesus has told us not to, then he says, repent. Um, And I think that's shocking enough on its own. In a sense, that's it for tonight. That's the main point. Um, But just notice as well, you cannot trade off how good these churches are against this tolerance. You can't trade verse 19 against verse 20. I think that is really um, what the, the bishops have tried to do. Um, There are lots of good bishops in the Church of England. And I I suspect the decision that they've felt forced to was to try somehow to sort of settle the issue of gay sex so that we can all reunite and get on with the deeds and the love and the faith and the service and the perseverance. I think that's what they're trying to do. But you cannot trade one against the other. The the, the real change, I think, in the bishop's letter, at least as far as I've got in my understanding of it after two days, is that it changes our understanding of what a church is. Changing from it being a place where 
um, what the teaching, the doctrine of Jesus is, matters, and the implications of that teaching, what it means for our lives, and where it's good to teach that teaching and live by that teaching, change from that to one, a church where it is more important to stay together, even if we're in profound disagreement, even if that means tolerating and promoting teaching that Jesus would not want tolerated. You see how those are two very different views of church. Now, I'm, I'm not at all claiming that what's been in the news this week and what's in the bishop's document is the same as the teaching in Pergamum and Thyatira. We're only told a few details about that teaching. But I would like you just have a look and see if you would agree with me that it's in the same category as what the bishops are saying this week, and therefore the same consequences would apply. So um, something about Balaam, something about Jezebel. Um, Those are both Old Testament names, and they're chosen here partly to protect the identities of the real man and real woman criticized here. Um, Old Testament Balaam, he was a Uh, Well, he was employed by a pagan king, and he was employed to curse God's people, and he failed. But before heading home, he taught, verse 14, uh, the king, King Balak, a sort of plan B. And plan B involved sending women to entice the Israelite men into sex, and then from sex to worshipping Balak's gods, And then more sex, probably in a sort of religious context. That's Balaam. And uh, Old Testament Jezebel, she was the sort of one woman equivalent, in a sense. Um, She was queen of Israel. She was married to Ahab, but she was herself a Phoenician princess. So she brought with her all her gods and brought with her a whole-scale transformation of Israel from the worship of gods to the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. And as well as that, I think the situation of persecution in Pergamum is important as well. So in Pergamum, to keep your job and to keep your place in your family, you needed to fit in. It's the same as in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 that we spoke about earlier in the year. Um, And sex and worship in their society were tightly connected. And the, the new teaching is offered here as a way to help you be a Christian and live there. Um, The new teaching says, join in with the feasting in the temple and the sex in the temple. Um, Sacrifice to the emperor and Jesus won't mind. That seems to be the attraction of it. Um, Just like Balaam, just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, it starts with sex. It entices people in. It ends up in the worship of other gods where sex and worship define the new religion. Now, that is not the same as today. But I think there are enough points of similarity um, that we can make the connection. So um, the sexual revolution has now become a religion and is really the dominant religion in the UK and may be becoming uh, an intolerant and persecuting religion. And in that religion, sex will save you. Um, Sex even creates you. Uh, gives you your identity. And certainly denying yourself sex, uh, the idea is that will destroy you, even make you less human, uh, remove the image of the divine in you. And 
I fear that the, the teaching that the bishops asked us to tolerate on Friday, that has enough points of connection that we know that Jesus would say no and say that we must repent of tolerating it if we are. Now, there's a, a, a very long way to go before I can tell you how All Souls is going to respond in practice. We are planning to, to take our time and to think about it all very carefully. Um, it may be because of Friday, we may need to do some kind of holding position sooner than we're expecting, but we're, we're planning a whole load of, of um, ways of, of talking together. So there'll be a Q&A after church on the 5th of March. Um, by which time I'm at least hoping to understand it a bit better. Uh, then in April, um, three of the clergy here are going to go to to Kigali in Rwanda to meet with bishops and archbishops from all over the world uh, to ask them what we should do. Um, people like um, Bishop Renis Panaya, I don't know if you remember who visited this time last year, he's going to be there. In fact, um, he's staying with me uh, this week and he's coming to the same residential as me this week. And then what we'll do, we'll, we'll gather um, the whole church together for a Saturday, uh, probably in June, um, for some teaching and to ask you what you think we should do. Um, and then the, the church council will make some decisions uh, after that about the next few years. And may I say um, to you how sorry I am. Um, it is deeply painful to be part of a church uh, a denomination that is going through this. Um, I've got friends uh, in North America, uh, Canada, and in the USA. I've got friends in Scotland, friends in Wales, who have been through this with their churches, with their denominations ahead of us. Um, and it is deeply painful, I know. Um, particularly if you are, as I hope you are, identified at work uh, as someone who goes to All Souls, to that church by the BBC. Uh, identified as a Christian, as someone who goes to church. But one of the, the key principles that Jesus says defines a church is here. If Jesus says it is bad to tolerate teaching that says sexual immorality is okay, um, well, then it is Jesus we will follow here at All Souls. And that is not hateful, and that is not about exclusion. Um, that is actually about love, which is just the, the final thing I want to say in the last couple of minutes. Um, the loved. Um, just remember where all seven of these letters end. Uh, in each one, there's, there's something from the future promised to the one who will hear what the Spirit says and the one who is victorious, which is defined in verse 26, as the one who does my will to the end. And remember what we said, that could be any of us, no matter who we were, no matter who we are, no matter who we are attracted to, and no matter what we have done, sexually or anything else. So look at verse 21. Um, anyone can repent, even Jezebel. I have given her time to repent of her immorality but she is unwilling. And even some of the, the horrible things that follow in the next verse, the suffering and the sickness, that also it is designed to rescue her and her followers and bring them to the only way forward, which is repentance. And notice as well that, that toleration is not how to love her or Balaam from Pergamum. 
verse 16. Look at that. The, the church needs to repent of the toleration. That's for all of us. And if we don't, well, then Jesus will fight against them, against these teachers. So the, the bishop's letter on Friday, I think, is desperately unkind. Um, I think it's horrendous for many of my friends who are same-sex attracted and clinging on to sexual purity against the, the full force of the world's media. I think it's unkind, actually, to, as I've said, to anybody who is trying to keep sex just for marriage. But it is also unkind to the people who are teaching those things are okay. Jesus is against that teaching. And how can I love them if I don't tell them. And one more thing, if you mind, uh, if you would pray, tomorrow afternoon I'm spending two hours with um, some of the most open voices teaching in the Church of England that uh, that this should change, uh, meeting chaired by the Bishop of Oxford, uh, who you'll know has been very public about his view. Um, these people, they've become friends of mine, people I respect, people I trust, uh, people I would uh, spend time with and love. But how can I love them if I do not tell them, if Jesus is against them and I don't tell them? How can I love them if I agree to tolerate them and their teaching if Jesus says the church should not? And actually, as well, there's no um, there's no future for the church in opposing Jesus. I think that's what um, Jezebel's children is about in verse 23. Um, there's no long-term growth plan for the church or no way of um, helping the needy in our city or of transforming any part of London unless we stick with Jesus and his wonderful but demanding standards. Um, and that you know, the fact there's no future in it, that could be something that we wouldn't know now and we wouldn't be able to see the evidence of for another hundred years or something. But actually, in God's kindness, you've just got to pick up the papers. You've just got to look at the, the statistics. All over the world, denominations who tolerate this new teaching are collapsing and denominations who teach the unpopular but unchanged gospel of Jesus are growing. Um, even within the Church of England, that is clear to see. So actually, we um, we can go on telling people the gospel. We can go on praying for, you know, it isn't suspended while we sort this stuff out. Um, we can give thanks for over 60 people here for Hope Explored last week after the carol services. And um, we can trust God, I can trust God for all of you gathered here this evening and for the people at Roots who are brand new to the church and the future of all souls because the future of the church is with Jesus, whatever happens to the Church of England. So um, being loved, well, to any who, verse 25, hold on till they see Jesus, they will be given a throne. You can tell if someone loves you by what they share with you. Um, God the Father shares his throne with Jesus. Fair enough. Jesus is awesome. Jesus would be good at ruling the world, wouldn't he? That's the point. And Jesus, verse 26, verse 27, shares his throne with us. 
Isn't that an odd thing to do? Extraordinary thing to do with confused Christians who you know, can't even make a decision like how to live um, after the sexual revolution and be a Christian. He says he's going to share his throne with us and give us decisions to make about judging the nations. What? Um, but let's close with verse 17. Um, verse 17, we have a, a love token. This is what Jezebel and Balaam will miss out on. But this is what any sexual sinner or any sinner who repents can have. This is what any Christian who clings on and follows Jesus can have. It says, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's the miracle food of God's people in the desert. But then it says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, so much of the sexual revolution is really about a love deficit. Um, People want the freedom to love, or how do I know I'm loved, or how can I be me if I don't feel loved? And this desperate search for identity and love and meaning in sex and the worship of all the other gods of the age. When really, uh, Jesus, who is the creator God who made us, he offers eternal love to any who turn to him. He says, I'll give you a stone. The stone is personal. It's like a secret message. And it is identifying, identity creating. It's a new name. It's a name that is about how you are his and he is yours forever.